Welcome to The Readings Podcast, a production from Melbourne's leading independent bookstore, Readings Books and Music. In today's episode, author Kate Grenville talks about her latest book, Restless Dolly Maunder. This novel brings Grenville's grandmother to life as someone we can recognise and whose struggles we can empathise with. This compelling new novel is the story of a woman working her way through a world of limits and obstacles who was able, if at a cost, to make a life she could call her own. Her battles and triumphs helped to open doors for the women who would come after. Grenville was interviewed by Eve Rees, writer, historian and podcaster, who co-hosts Archive Fever. Here's Rees to introduce Grenville. It's such a pleasure to be here in discussion uh, with Kate, thinking about this really wonderful book. I'd also like to acknowledge that I'm on unceded Wurundjeri land This is a book about Australian history and I think it's always important to, you know, frame these conversations with acknowledgement that we live on stolen land and any kind of discussion of settler Australian history must commence with that acknowledgement and recognise that this is a living culture and that Aboriginal sovereignty was never ceded. I'm sure if you're here tonight, you might have heard of Kate Grenville. She is really a living legend of Australian literature who needs very little or even no introduction, but I'm just going to give you a brief overview of some of the highlights of her career. She's the author of no less than 17 books, I believe now, across fiction, nonfiction and biography. Her award-winning novels include Lillian's Story, which won the Vogel Prize in 1984, and The Idea of Perfection, which won the Orange Prize in 2001. Her 2005 novel, The Secret River, won the Commonwealth Writers Prize and was shortlisted for the Man Booker Prize and was adapted for stage and screen. More recently, she's published a further three novels set in colonial Australia, including A Room Made of Leaves, a 2020 novel inspired by the early colonist Elizabeth MacArthur, as well as Elizabeth MacArthur's Letters, which was an edited collection of MacArthur's correspondence, which I've been lucky enough to talk to Kate about in a previous interview wearing my other hat as the host of a podcast called Archive Fever. In preparing for this conversation today, I was reflecting on my first encounter with Kate's work, and I realised it was when I was about 13 years old when I was a very nerdy kind of voracious reader and aspiring writer and I went to the local Angus and Robertson's in Newcastle where I lived and I picked up a book that was called Writing from Start to Finish and I thought this this is the book I've been looking for. This is going to teach me how to do this this thing called become an author and it was written by by this woman called Kate Grenville and that was, you know, one of the first things I looked to to learn how to write, how to do this strange thing called becoming an author. And so it's this kind of nice synchronicity that 20 years later or over 20 years later, now actually a published author myself, Kate is still teaching me how to write. I absolutely love this book, Restless Dolly Maunder, that we're here to talk about tonight. And Amongst many things, I really read it as a lesson in how to write the stories of women in Australia's past. In my day job at La Trobe University, I'm a historian who focuses on Australian gender history. And 
I learned so much from this book about not only the detail of Dolly Maunder's life, but how we can write creatively and accessibly and persuasively about, you know, there's so many women's stories in our nation's past that have not yet been told but deserve to be. For anyone who hasn't read this book yet, Restless Dolly Maunder tells the life story of an Australian woman who was born in the 1880s who came of age during Federation and then lived through the big events of early 20th century Australian history, World War I, the Great Depression, World War II. And along the way, we see her marry, have children and become an incredibly successful businesswoman. But even though this book is a novel, it's inspired by a very real historical character, Dolly Maunder, who was Kate Grenville's grandmother. And the book actually ends with us getting a tantalising little glimpse of Kate herself. We see Kate as a five-year-old or thereabouts in the garden of her family home interacting with her grandmother and having this kind of funny little encounter. And so to begin our conversation tonight, Kate, I'd, I'd like to kind of begin at the end of the book with that encounter. Could you take us back to your your childhood self interacting with your grandmother that day and give us a bit of a sense of what kind of a woman she was and how she kind of operated within the world of your family. Who who was Dolly Maunder to you as a child? Yes, and what a wonderful question. Opens up everything. Thank you for your very generous introduction and I want to say thank you all all 95 people who are here to listen to us and it's a, such a pleasure be talking to you and specifically through you, Eve. Okay, my grandmother. The book ends with my one really vivid memory of my grandmother. People who've read the book will have to just put up with me telling them again. She came on me in the garden one day. It was about five and I was scuffling around in the dirt, which was my favourite place to be. And she, from my point of view, she was this long, thin, wrinkled, sort of dark The vibe from her was extremely dark and she looked down at me, it seemed like a long way down, and she said, do you love me, Cathy? And I looked up at this long, frightening person and I did think about it, but finally I think I must have been taught to be a truthful child and I said, no. And for years I told that as a funny story at my grandmother's expense. How is it possible that someone as unlovable as my grandmother could ask such a silly question? But it's been a long journey for me to get to know my grandmother as a grown-up and to know her as a woman. And in the course of that, I realised that I did her wrong. I should not have made her the butt of a funny story. In fact, the joke's on me. This was a woman who had had a very, very hard life and had come through it with determination courage, persistence, all kinds of qualities that I like. And now at the end of her life, she wanted to be loved. She probably always wanted to be loved, but now she was verbalising it. And here she was getting a rebuff from her little granddaughter, wretched little thing that she was. So if I thought that there was another world beyond this one in which I might meet Dolly Maunder, I would say, Grandma, I'm really sorry. I now realise who you are or more about you, and I would like the answer to be, do you love me, Cathy? Yes, the answer is yes, I do. 
At what point did you realise that you were going to write a book about this mysterious, sort of intriguing woman in your family? Was there any kind of event or moment that prompted the journey of this book? No, like everything I do, it was disorganised and incremental. I think I could have that on my gravestone, really. She was disorganised and incremental. <laughs> Look, my mother died in 2002 and she left a lot of fragments of memoir of her life. Now, Mum knew that she was not anything remarkable. Well, in fact, she was, but she knew that her story represented the story of a whole generation of women whose stories had not been told. She was from, you know, fairly what you might call an ordinary family. And apart from being a pharmacist, which was very unusual, and writing a letter to the paper about prunes, which was also probably unusual, you know, there was nothing spectacular. She she didn't go to India and explore or anything like that. But she cared very deeply about the fact that her life was a tiny part of the big picture of the history of her times. If I have a sense of history, it's from my mother. Mm. Anyway, I finally got my act together and put all those bits of memoir together and wrote a book about her, which is called One Life. And she left me a huge body of detail which could enrich that book. And a lot of her memoirs were about her own mother, who was, of course, Dolly Maunder. Mm. Now, her mother, in mum's view, was a bully, dominating, perhaps Mm. even a bit mad. But in researching my mother's life and thinking about the memoirs she'd left, I realised that actually mum might have had it a bit wrong about her mother, as I'm afraid daughters very often do have it wrong about their mothers. So I began to realise that I could have a relationship with my grandmother that was not the relationship of that tactless five-year-old, but was also not the second-hand relationship of seeing my grandmother through my mother's eyes. I could meet this woman, this unknown woman, on her own terms and on my own terms. So that came gradually. I found myself starting to do some research about her. For example, I read a fabulous book by Claire Wright, who I know, Mm. of whom you are a colleague, about women and pubs in Mm. the 19th and early 20th century. And, of course, my grandmother, when she left the farm, she and her husband ran a series of pubs, and that's how they kind of made good uh, until they lost it all in the Depression. So I read, for example, Claire's book, and I thought, yeah, there really is a story here. Claire has told one side of it, but as a novelist, I can come to it in a different way. Who were these women? You know, in those old photographs of women born in 1880, like my grandmother, they seem like another species. They seem like people we could never know. Their faces are impassive because of the very long exposures that the technology needed. And their bodies are encased in these simply impossible clothes. We look at them in kind of wonder and horror and we think, I couldn't have done that. Well, of course, we would have had to if we'd been born then. So what I wanted to do was get behind the stereotype that is the dull, lifeless stereotype that is represented by those photos. And I think one of the ways you do that so well is by capturing Dolly's voice in the prose, you know, the novel's written in the third person, but it feels like a kind of close third, like we're really getting into Dolly's head, into her interior world and her view of the world. How did you go about kind of capturing a sense of her voice? You know, it's funny, sometimes the voice is difficult to get. I have to have a lot of goes at it. It came immediately. The first sentence of the book sort of flowed out and the voice came 
from then. It's something about wanting to be always moving. So it's quite a simple voice. You know, I love to write lush Baroque prose. Yeah. It's a real indulgence. It's sort of like listening to some fabulously lush bit of Brahms or something. But in this book, not only did I know that wouldn't be appropriate, but I didn't want to. I really enjoyed inhabiting her world. As soon as she could walk, she knew she wanted to be outside moving. The house was too dark, too small, smelling of stale wood smoke and dogs. So that very plain, but what I tried to do was infuse a little bit of music into the actual cadence of each sentence. So I did my usual many drafts to find the music in very plain language. It's, it's not a book with a lot of figures of speech. There are a couple, which I thought would suit her. At one point, when she and her husband go bust in the Depression, she says, we were caught in the cogs, between the teeth of the cogs of some vast machine that had suddenly ground to a halt, the machine of capitalism, in fact. And myself and my husband are caught in its teeth. So I liked paring it down, actually. I liked putting the Baroque aside for a little while. Yeah, I really was struck that it is quite a departure from your traditional, I suppose, or more usual prose style. But yeah, I think is very simple, but has that musicality. And one way I think it assumes the musicality is through the use of Australian vernacular. There's some really wonderful turns of phrase, which we don't often hear anymore. Was that something you sort of researched specifically, or was that just sort of language you'd absorbed from older generations in your life? Yeah, I think I'd absorbed it. My grandmother lived with us for a couple of years and she used those sorts of phrases. But more clearly, I remember my grandfather, her husband, who also came to live with us some 10 years later. He had some wonderful, wonderful expressions. One that I love, and I couldn't find any way of working it into the book. I don't think I did anyway, which is if you want something done, don't go to the maggots on the block, go to the butcher. And I just thought nobody talks like that anymore. <laughs> So I think it's not in the book, but now I've had a chance to air it. I want to jump back to that kind of, I suppose, question of the generations of women who were born in the 1880s that you sort of alluded to a moment ago. I feel like there's a few points in the book where you're sort of signalling that this is a a kind of pivotal generation, a, a generation of women who were still constrained by living in the patriarchal society of settler Australia that still had limited educational opportunities and limited legal rights, but was sort of paving the way for the next generation, you know, your mother's generation who could go on more easily to have professional careers and more educational opportunities. And I found that idea really intriguing because, you know, we often talk about, say, the baby boomer generation as being this turning point, pivotal generation, but we We've sort of forgotten about the generation of the 1880s before that. So could you kind of unpack this idea for us about what you think makes this a kind of important generation of women? In Dolly's lifetime, in fact, the year she was born, a revolution happened which I can't think of many parallels to in its enormous effect on millions of lives, and that is free, compulsory, secular public education. Now, Dolly came from a long line of people who were illiterate, probably all all but her grandfather, John Martin Davis, would have been illiterate because education cost money, even the simplest kind of education cost money, and it also wasn't kind of necessary and it often wasn't respected. Her great-grandfather Solomon Wiseman said, I'm not going to send my children to school because they're the children of convicts and they'll be humiliated there. But in 1880, the Act for Public Instruction was passed 
And Dolly was just in time for it. Now, if those men in Macquarie Street had not decided to pass that law, she would have grown up like her mother, her grandmother, etc., illiterate and therefore with zero options in life. Get married, you know, be on the farm. But by the time she was five, the little tiny town, Currabubula, in northern New South Wales, where she grew up, had a school, a one-room school. And so between the ages of five and 14, she went to school. And that was just enough just enough education that when the farm that she and her husband had failed, they were able to get out of it and go into business, which was kind of the only opportunity for people from their background. But without being able to read and write, you can't run a pub or, in fact, any business. So to me, that's the enormous hinge. She herself says, I was the hinge generation. And in that sense, as soon as you gave women education, like you couldn't keep us down after that. As soon as we had education, a woman like Dolly, who was bright and who could see that there were opportunities there, it was like the door had just come open a tiny chink and I picture her getting in there with elbows, shoving that door wider apart to go through it and, moreover, to make sure that her daughter could go through it too. So to me, that thing of education, it seems almost unrecognised because we take it for granted like breathing now. Almost everybody can read and write. Absolutely basic. How would you live in the 21st century without that? When I do battle with technology, I think, wow, I'm probably like Dolly's father who couldn't read and write. I have to say to my children, can you help me do this? When we give a chronology of women's lives in Australia, we so often focus on the enfranchisement of white women in 1901 as this kind of key moment. But I love the fact that your book reminds us of this other key date of compulsory public education as being, you know, equally and perhaps in some lives more significant in terms of changing women's day-to-day lives. I think actually quite a lot more significant because after all, getting the vote didn't make any difference to women for quite a long time. After all, I've forgotten now the dates, but it was many years before we had a a Member of Parliament who was a woman. And after all, we've still only had one Prime Minister who was a woman. So I I think the education thing for me is, is more important. But as you say, it depends who you're looking at. The thing about the past and women is that the only women whose voices have come down to us were the educated ones. And in the bad old days, that meant that they came from basically what you might call the gentry, the top lot, the top tiny percent. And that has become, because they were the ones that wrote the novels, the letters, the journals that people are now republishing, we get this stereotype that that's what they were like. And, of course, they were not. And to them, I suspect the coming of enfranchisement meant perhaps more because education meant nothing to them. They they were the privileged ones who had it. Whereas to Dolly, I haven't written about women getting the vote. She was 20 when that happened, because I have a feeling it probably didn't affect her very much. Her day-to-day life is still pretty mired in domestic drudgery a lot of the time. Those are some of my favourite sections of the book, particularly early on before she marries. And, you know, you just have this incredibly detailed account of just the relentless grind of, you know, stoking the fire to boil the water, to do the washing and, you know, cook all the meals. And it's just so visceral. It really kind of reminds you of, particularly before electricity, what a kind of endless toil it was. And I love it because, you know, we we don't 
often write about those kind of trivial, mundane domestic details and it feels so profound and so political to kind of give them this detailed attention in literature. How did you kind of get into those passages and kind of find a sort of a rhythm and a musicality and a a kind of vivid detail that would grip the reader when we're writing about some really uh, terrible parts of our daily lives? I feared that I was doing too much. But at one stage, I think I took the making of a cup of tea and what that involved, 1890 in Carabobula, because I totally agree with you. I mean, housework is one of the most political things, aspects of our lives. And we have completely forgotten not only what our foremothers went through with that, but also what, I don't know what percentage of women in the world are still enslaved to the fact that they have to forget the cup of tea, even to have a drink of water. I have some little brass pots that I bought in India when I was there in 1976 with a little, they've got a beautiful shape, and that shape is because the woman went to the well, tied a rope around this quite small pot, lowered it physically into the well, hauled it back up, maybe a pint of water at most, and she would have had to do that, you know, endless times to just give her family enough water to drink, you know, forget forget anything else. I knew that vividly because for a while I had a bush block. When I lived in Sydney, I had a bush block near Bathurst and there was a water tank. This was not something I got by research or, if you like, it was experiential research. I'd get up in the morning and I'd think, okay, first I have to get the old ashes out of the fire, find some bit of newspaper, kindling, go out to the tank. I didn't have to pump the water but I had to walk out to the tank and carry it back in in a bucket. So. All that gave me a kind of a sense of respect, really, and also horror because those people who are still saying, why is it that women didn't compose great music or paint great paintings, they've never done that. Somebody else has always done it. I mean, women were the slave class. It seems like every moment in humanity there's a slave class and for a very long time women were that. So, yeah, you can hear the indignation in my voice because I think, imagine, you know, every time I go to, for example, a concert and see women up on stage playing the violin, like my daughter-in-law, I think even 100 years ago, what would that woman have done with that passion to make music? How would she have crushed that passion and reduced her life to this tiny small thing that she was permitted? So I I do feel on (laughs) on behalf of all those women of the past, I do feel indignant. Very rightfully so. And, I mean, that kind of leads nicely to another question I wanted to ask, which is perhaps a bit flippant, but, I mean, what what do you think Dolly would be doing if she was alive today? Because, you know, as you show, she was so entrepreneurial, so intelligent, really creative, you know, the kind of person who was a leader and made things happen. And there's a great line in the book where she sort of says that she feels like she should be running the country. I mean, if she was alive in 2023, do you think she would be, quite possibly? Well, she wanted to become a teacher, so she probably Mm -hmm. might have started her life as a teacher. Her father said, over my dead body, and that was the I mean, that's how it was in 1895 when my grandmother wanted to be a, a teacher. So she would have probably started as a teacher. And from then, of course, women go in all sorts of directions. She may well have ended up in Parliament. But she may also have gone into business because there's a kind of challenge. I suspect she didn't live lavishly at all. It wasn't the money that she enjoyed. It was the making of it. Mm. 
making money was a problem as fascinating to her as the problems of writing a novel are to me, I suspect. And it's a kind of abstract, you know, we are problem-solving creatures as a species and uh, we all have a different kind of problem that we enjoy solving. But I think with her, either making money or perhaps more having some kind of influence in the world over other people. I read her as cranky and my mother read her as a dominating bully. But both of those things can be flipped around to say, as, as you use the word leader, this is a person who could have been a leader. So who knows? What a wasted, what a lost opportunity in a way. And as you show in the book, I mean, you know, one of the main instruments by which women incredibly kind of ambitious, potentially powerful women like Dolly were constrained was through the institution of marriage. You know, you sort of, through the book, you sort of return to this idea again and again of the kind of double bind that women of Dolly's generation couldn't stay single because then they would be mocked and pitied as, as a spinster and kind of stuck in the family home. But, you know, once you're married, you would have to leave your profession because of the, you know, if you had one, because of the marriage bar and you would, you know, be chained to a man forever um, and have limited kind of property rights and control of your own money. Given everything you know about this history of marriage and seeing it play out in the life of this one woman, your grandmother, do you think marriage can be redeemed? Or is it a kind of inherently patriarchal, anti-feminist institution? Look, I can only say that marriage has changed. Yeah. So perhaps it depends which marriage you're talking about when you ask me that question. And marriage today is a very different thing from marriage in Dolly's day when it was, in fact, the only possible way to get a decent life for a woman. Mm. And actually she was very clever because she married a man who, in fact, was not much of a patriarch. He was a strong, in his own way, quite dominant personality, but he came from a family that had given him a very different view of women. Mm. His mother was a single mother. She had eight children by at least eight different men, many of whom were illegitimate. I've seen their birth certificates, and it has the word illegitimate scrawled across it, which is why I used that word, that very offensive word. So who knows what Mrs Russell's story was, but the fact is she was a single mother with an enormous number of children and no visible means of support. It must have been very, very tough for her. So Bert, my grandfather, grew up in that household watching a woman struggle because the world that men ran had no place for her except this kind of oppressed place. So I think she chose well because what that made Bert was someone who didn't automatically say no if a woman had a good idea, didn't automatically steal her idea and pretend it was his, all the tricks that men often do. I guess women perhaps do them too. So in that sense, Within the strictures, as with her whole life, within the limitations that, that the world had given her, she found a way forward. She found that little chink. So she and Bert, I think they got on quite well at the level of discussing the business and so on, and I'm sure they, you know, had some good times. They were a good team, I think you'd say that. It was not a romance, but they were a good working partnership, and there's a lot to be said for that. I want to also pick up on the, the theme of restlessness, which is obviously in the title, The Restless Dolly Maunder. And we see it, you know, play out in Dolly's life that she's 
well, from the very first line that you read out about her wanting to be outside and moving and then later as, you know, she becomes an owner of pubs, you know, she's always looking for the next bigger and better pub, the next opportunity. And kind of thinking about the idea of restlessness in Dolly's life, I suppose I was thinking about some work that some historians have done suggesting that restlessness is kind of at the heart of what it means to be a a colonist, to live in a settler colony like Australia. These were people who migrated from Britain or their other home country and then often moved around within Australia or other colonies they lived in. So that kind of a restlessness and a sort of hunger for the next is built into settler colonial culture. I'm curious about what you think about that. Like, do you think this restlessness is very particular to Dolly and her own personality, or is she kind of reflective of the culture in which she was raised in that way? That's such an interesting idea about colonists. Special place in there for people like Dolly's family who were convicts, colonists, but of course once they got here, they kind of were only too pleased, I think, to join the colonial project. Yeah. Even though they didn't, it was not restlessness that brought them here in the beginning. Yeah, yeah. It was failing to steal something sufficiently cunningly. (laughs) Look, I think restlessness is a quality that happens when you've come up against a a block. It's a really interesting one and I can absolutely see that. But in the case of somebody like Dolly, her restlessness is because each time something presented itself and started to become a good, something happened to make it go wrong. So they ended up for a while at a pub in Tamora, which is in New South Wales. They could have perhaps stayed there forever, but I'm almost certain, I mean, the events in this book are all based on fact as far as I know, at least what my mother told me, which I think probably is factual. She could have probably stayed there and settled down and become part of the furniture and stopped being restless, but her husband had an affair with somebody. Mm. And from then on, he was a, you know, a handsome man with a twinkle in his eye. From then on, I think her restlessness was partly in order to keep that from happening again, basically. So it was imposed on her. It might have also been part of her personality, but it was also a sensible response to a reality, which is that her husband had a roving eye. So let's keep moving. You know, let's <laughs> let's not let him get too like the way they move bank managers and diplomats, so they don't uh, you know get too comfortable with the with the local scene. And in a way, I mean, restlessness. We don't still live in caves, after all. We were restless enough to work out something else. It's got its good qualities, and it's also got its ferociously bad qualities. I think the desire for further, better, bigger. It has to be always questioned. I think. We'll go to audience questions in a minute, but I want to just kind of ask a few final questions of my own to ask you to reflect on how researching and writing this book perhaps made you rethink the sort of the broader story of your family over many generations and your place within it. Did it it kind of prompt any new reflections on that front? One of the things that I've been very concerned with for, I don't know, the last 30 years is if you are a descendant of colonists or, you know, the invaders, what do you do with that fact? What do you do with it? How can you unpick that? I mean, there's nowhere for me to go back to, but also you can't just pretend that that didn't happen and has no significance. At the very end of the book, there's a little bit called Thinking About Silences. And in that bit, I say, 
I want to make two points. One is that nothing in the family stories ever talked about the great unspoken reality of my family's place in this country, which is that they always lived on land that belonged to somebody else. And I've actually listed them here. In their lifetimes, Dolly and Bert lived on, and I then list all the uh, First Nations countries where they lived in their lifetime. And I want to acknowledge that I have told one story here, but standing mm-hmm. beside it is the story that I, it's not my story to tell, it's the story of the people whose land my family took. And just finally, I suppose I'm interested in your broader reflections about the stories we tell or don't tell about Australian history. You know, you've been writing about Australia's past in many forms for many decades now. Perhaps, you know, aside from First Nations stories, which you'll just touch on, but what other stories do you think are still missing? What what are the stories we should be telling but haven't quite got there yet? I think there are so many of them that need to come out of the shadows and stories that we never even never even thought were there, really. Mm-hmm. They were so effaced, erased by the main narrative of pioneers, et cetera, in this country, we didn't even know they were there. I go into a bookshop and I think, oh, wow, okay, there's that as well to be thought about, something I've never, never thought about. So what a fabulous time to be a mm-hmm. reader. Yeah, I mean, that's certainly my sense as well, that, yeah, this the, the kind of diversity of storytellers and stories has exploded, you know, hugely in the last five or ten years and it's, yeah, exciting to see what more is to come. Yeah. Look, the stories have always been there. Perhaps the difference is now we're, we're willing to listen to them. Yeah, we're willing to listen to them and publish them to some yeah. degree, extent, at least. Um, now we've got some great audience questions in the chat, so we might turn to those now while we've still got time remaining. So there's one from Belinda who asks, what was it like trying to unlock your grandmother's personality and story given it was so different to your own memory of her and how did you know that you had it right? Ah, well, look, to take the easy part, I don't know that I've got it (laughs) right at all. (laughs) That's why this is a novel. All the events are as they happened. What Dolly felt and thought about them, I had to extrapolate from my own experience what I knew of her some research, what seemed plausible from the person that I knew. Look, a lot of it was going, as I always do, going to the place where it happened. For some reason, mooching around a place without any particular aim in mind somehow unlocks, it takes away the analytical part of your brain. I mean, for example, I went to Tamora and I did go to the newspaper office and looked at the old photographs, but mainly I just walked around the town this is what a novelist does. It's very, it's not factual, it's not analytical. I think it's because the kind of intellectual clutter or chatter is removed from your brain while you're just mooching around and you're kind of open to some other kind of thing, which in this case was what Dolly might have been like. We've also got a question from Pamela who asks about Bert, saying Bert seems to vanish at the end of the book. Um, I'd like to know what happened to him because I have some sympathy with him. Did you have a relationship with Bert as a grandfather? Yes, I did. He lived with us for about well, five or six years in my teens. He had been a shearer 
and he was very bored when he came to live with us. He'd lived on a farm, on the Green Hills farm, until he came to live with us, which is where he was all those years when Dolly was wandering around. But when he came to us, I think he was very bored. He'd never lived in the city before and there was nothing for him to do. By then he was about late 70s or 80. One of the things he did was to sharpen every knife in the house. He had been a shearer when it was still what they called the blades, which is like a pair of scissors, and they had to be kept razor sharp to shear the sheep. And so he would take every knife in the house and make it as sharp as a scalpel, actually, buttering a slice of bread. You took your life in your hands. So, And the other thing he loved was to sit on a particular yellow armchair, which is, in fact, right here beside me as I speak, caressing the the velvet upholstery and reading westerns. He loved westerns and I used to buy them for him. I used to go to a, a shop called Tyrrell's, a secondhand bookshop in Sydney, and I'd buy them by the yard. These terrible things, I couldn't read them, but he loved them. So, yeah, I was very fond of my grandfather. Uh, he was a good fellow. Did he, did he still have a bit of a twinkle in his eye when you knew him? Look, actually, I think he did. And in fact, he died at an advanced age. He was in a nursing home by then, but he had been taken out for the day by a woman he'd become friendly with and got pneumonia. He'd got been out too late and got cold, got pneumonia and died. So I think even to the end of his life, he was still enjoying the company of women. Good on him. There's a question from Diana who asks, do you have a place to write that provides the feeling or the era you're writing about? Ah, what an interesting question. No, but I do have a lot of bits and pieces. I actually have, and had in front of me while I was writing, the teapot that was engraved and given to my grandfather and grandmother when they left the farm, which had failed after seven years of not getting crop. It says, you know, Mr and Mrs Russell on their leaving Gunnedah. It was quite ceremonial. It's a funny little thing. I mean, it just about holds two, two cups. It's quite a mean size. But something about the poignancy of the solemn language on it uh, and the the fact that the people had banded together and got this thing, it makes it very real, like walking around Tamora. Suddenly it's real. These were real people. I'm not making, I'm not inventing them. My job is to try in the best way I can. So that's what I do, lots of little bits and pieces. I have a little bit of purple velvet, which was once part of a coat that Dolly had, which is also in the book. So those objects, if you have them, how precious they are. Is that the coat she had made for her in Tamora? With the silver button at the throat, yes. We've also got a question from Helen who is asking about, you know, choosing to write this book as a novel as opposed to a work of nonfiction or memoir. You know, publishing forces you to class a book either mm. as fiction or nonfiction. There's something called the metadata, which my <laughs> publisher talked about a lot. Now, to me, this is kind of, it's it's in the grey area between fiction and non-fiction. And I think a lot of the best stories, in fact, most stories, live in that place. I knew the events. I didn't know the personality. So in that sense, it's both fiction and non-fiction. And I wanted somehow to be, to be kind of uh, true to both. And it's part of the reason why I put myself in at the very end and also put in the full-length photograph of Dolly to say, mm. okay, Sort of like you've read the kind of imaginative reconstruction, but here's the reality. Here is the woman trussed up in her dreadful dress, and here am I, a real person who was her real granddaughter. So, you know, somehow to say these old stories, we can't hope for them to be, you know, like fact. What is fact anyway? As a historian, you would know what a silly question that is. Let's accept 
that some things are an imaginative entry into a world we didn't know before we read the book. One from Luna is asking, do you feel closer to Dolly after writing this book? Oh, definitely. Absolutely. I feel such sympathy for her and such pain at all that she had to suffer and the kind of pain of empathy. I think, my gosh, if I had been born in that situation and had to put up with what she, I I would not have coped the way. She was knocked down many times in her life. The first time was her father saying, over my dead body, you'll be a teacher. And I suppose the last time was the death of her very much loved son on the Burma Railway in the Second World War. But each time she was knocked over, she somehow managed to kind of get back and get back to life. She did, I think, love life and treasure it. And that's a fabulous quality. Not everybody has it. I've got my own little add-on to that question. Do you see any of Dolody's personality or qualities in yourself? Ah, what a good question. I hadn't really thought of that. I often look at the picture on the cover and think, that doesn't look anything like me. Look, I have a dominant streak. I can be a nag, as she was, when provoked. I love to have a problem like she did and get my teeth into it and try and solve it. So, yes, I think so. But in that sense, she and I both share that. Most of the human race, I think, has those qualities. And you're very lucky if you have a life that allows you to kind of expand into the space that you should take up rather than constrict you into some space that is smaller than the one you actually should inhabit. I think that's maybe a nice place to end. Thank you so much, Kate, for really generously engaging with my questions and the audience questions about this really quite spectacular book, very profound literary achievement. Thank you, Eve, for your wonderful questions. And thank you, too, for the audience questions. I love that. Thank you. Restless Dolly Monda is available from all reading stores and from our website, where you'll also find all kinds of other recommendations for great books, music, film, and TV. You can also sign up to eNews or to receive our free monthly newsletter, The Readings Monthly. The Readings Podcast is produced by me, Nico Callaghan. The show's music is by Tom Hoskins. All episodes of this show are recorded and produced on the lands of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. I'd like to acknowledge traditional owners and pay owners respects to elders past, present and those to come. Thank you.